John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your mighty and awesome word. Pray that you administer to all of our hearts this morning through it, that you would bring appropriate conviction and encouragement, instruction and rebuke. Thank you that your, your word is capable of this great task through the work of your Holy Spirit. Pray that the sharp edges of divine truth would, would cut to the, the vision of soul and spirit and joints and marrows this morning, that it would discern between thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, we trust in you to do this great work. We know that we cannot fabricate it. We're dependent upon you to work in our hearts and minds. And we ask that you do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' earthly ministry was a whirlwind of activity. Jesus did more in his less than four years of public earthly ministry than is done by others given centuries of time. The Apostle John exclaims in John 21, right there at the very end of John's Gospel, verse 25, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Remember in the Gospels, we're provided with merely the tip of the iceberg when it comes to considering the acts and teachings of Jesus. However, what is recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is sufficient for God's people and sufficient to God's purposes. Again, John explains in chapter 20 of his gospel, verses 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life. In his name, you see, Jesus's activity was uniquely marked as completely and utterly in accordance with God, the father's will over and over again. Jesus explains that his actions are not some spurious, haphazard, whimsical good doing, but the completion of exactly what his father desired. Jesus had come to earth with a mission and with purpose. Yes, he came as the spotless, perfect Lamb of God to lay, who would lay down his own life as a ransom for many. But he had also come to fulfill all righteousness, to do all of his Father's will. And perhaps we forget that all of Jesus' teaching and miracles were done in the midst 
of a very difficult environment, one of persecution. Since our finite brains can only get our hands around so much, we can focus on one thing at a time, and the nature of even what we're doing here, conducting a multi-year study through the, through the Gospels, it's possible that our view of Jesus' ministry can become segmented, where we just see this one thing and we just kind of disassociate the connection of all these events, events one with another. It's easy to lose the big picture as we go through a systematic Bible study. Hence, I think there's some value to what we're doing in our harmony of the Gospels, trying to roughly chronologically order the events of Jesus' ministry as reviewing Jesus' life in chronological order helps maintain a context for all these events which transpire. Now, the giving of sight to this man born blind doesn't have any absolute explicit time stamps, which has fostered a lot of debate regarding the timing of this event. Where did this happen? Where should this be placed in Jesus' ministry? I do believe that John's Gospel is perhaps the most chronological of all of the Gospels, but Jesus, or John 9, 1 begins, as he, Jesus, passed by. That's our timestamp. As he passed by, which opens it up for a lot of discussion as to where this lands chronologically in the life and ministry of Jesus. We learn later in the same passage that the Pharisees uh, explain that this happened on the Sabbath, which is going to cause a whole lot of disgruntlement by the religious leaders yet Again, so we do know that, but we, we're not sure how much time has transpired between the end of chapter 8 in John's Gospel and the beginning of chapter 9 in John's Gospel. And if you've been along for the ride with me over previous weeks, you'll note that after we finished John 8, we jumped over to Luke chapter 10 and did a, just a discussion through 10 through 13 of, of Luke's Gospel. One of the primary reasons for this is because I believe that the attempt that is made on Jesus' life at the end of chapter 8 in John's Gospel um, most likely would have been followed by Jesus traveling on the outskirts of town for a little while. The dialogue that ensues among the religious leaders here in John 9, after they find out that Jesus has healed this man born blind on the Sabbath, they engage in a dialogue and a discussion about what they're going to do about this. It seems on some level that cooler heads have kind of started to to prevail, they're still desiring Jesus' death. That's still all very much there. But remember, at the end of chapter 8, they're picking up stones to throw them at Jesus. It seems likely that if this event had happened right following that, they probably would have been rushing out into the streets trying to find him immediately. Instead, they're again discussing how they might do away with this Jesus. So while they still have uh, malicious intent regarding Jesus, I think some coolness indicates that there's probably some period of time that has transpired between the events of chapter 8 and the events of chapter 9 in John's Gospel. But even given this harmonization, the events that happened at the end, at the end of what we just looked at last week in Luke 13, 10 through 17, had left Jesus' opponents humiliated while the crowds were rejoicing over Jesus' healing, yet again, on the Sabbath. Jesus' opponents were embarrassed. And as is often the case, when someone is embarrassed, they either, A, come to a place of repentance, or B, they become even more hardened and enraged by the situation. I think what we're noting here is a progression in this rage as it builds and builds against Jesus Christ. This situation seems to fit very well with the disputation that we'll see in coming weeks as the Pharisees discuss what Jesus has done and as they take issue with his further Sabbath infractions, as we'll look in the rest of John 9. But I don't want you to miss this, and the reason why I've mentioned all of this. 
Jesus knows that his hour, while not yet quite here, is quickly approaching. Remember, we're within the last six months of Jesus' ministry. We're getting closer and closer to the last three months of Jesus' ministry. And there are many who are plotting and planning Jesus' demise. Tensions are heightened and attempts on Jesus' life are being made. Now, while many of us may have treaded lightly, especially around Jerusalem, Jesus continues steadfastly in doing his father's work. And here's the question before us this morning I want us to think about. How is Jesus able to maintain such a compassionate, merciful outlook, which sees and heals this man born blind, while religious leaders in this very town are grasping for an opportunity to kill Jesus? In John's ordering of events, we move from John 8.59, in which the religious leaders are picking up stones to throw at Jesus, to stone him on the spot, to John 9, 6, where Jesus spits on the ground, makes some clay, and dabs it on this man's eyes. Now, let me ask this question. How many of us would be thinking about the cares and concerns of a blind beggar while others were plotting our death? Would that be, would be on your mind? Everyone wants me dead. They just picked up stones to kill me. And they continue to harass me everywhere I go. Meanwhile, here's a blind beggar. I need to spend some time with him. Perhaps I can put the question this way. Are we mindful of the situation of others in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in? Or is it just when everything else is lined up well in our life, all of a sudden we go, oh, maybe I can do something for someone else now. What are some lessons that we might learn from the Lord Jesus Christ that we might imitate his steadfast resolve to do the works of God no matter the situation, no matter the cost? I want to look at four qualities of a good workman from this text, qualities which Jesus demonstrated perfectly. Four qualities of a good workman. I'll list them quickly and then we'll look at them individually. Number one, a good workman knows who his boss is. A good workman knows who his boss is. And note with me that Jesus didn't cater to men's approval. Secondly, a good workman knows why his position exists. A good workman knows why his position exists. Jesus was committed to do something about man's desperate situation. And he passionately pursued the glory of God. A good workman knows why his position exists. Third, a good workman knows what his role is. He knows who he is, and he knows what he's been given to do. Jesus knew who he was, and he knew what his mission was. And fourthly, a good workman knows when it's time to work. A good workman knows when it's time to work. Jesus knew that his time was limited. First, Jesus' actions in John 9, 1 through 7, is a perfect example of the fact that a good workman knows who his boss is. In particular, note with me that Jesus did not cater to the approval of the public. Jesus didn't live for the applause of men. If we were to graph Jesus' popularity, we would just graph that through the course of his public ministry, I'm sure we would encounter massive roller coaster swings as we considered opinion regarding Christ. There were times when 
people were completely enamored with Jesus, like following the feeding of the 5,000. When people after that were told intended, quote, to come and take Jesus by force and make him king, John 6:15. But Jesus seems unfazed by such approval. In fact, if anything, it was precisely moments such as these that Jesus, quote, this is what happens, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. When his popularity is an all-time high, Jesus withdraws from the crowds and goes off to the mountains to be alone with his heavenly father. Remember in John 6, these crowds are so pumped up that, and so persistent that they track down Jesus. Remember, Jesus goes over the mountain. He sends his disciples across the sea. And this is the account where then Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And so then all of a sudden, Jesus is on the other side of the sea in Capernaum. These people, meanwhile, are looking all over for Jesus. They finally catch up with him in Capernaum and they ask him, how did he get there? They come seeking him. Jesus had attracted a following. But then at that moment, Jesus turns to the crowds that have sought him and found him and says to them in John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He continues to explain that all you're after is a free lunch. That's all you want. You're wanting your bellies to be filled. He exposes what their desires really are in regards to him. And he tells them instead that what they should be seeking is the bread of life. And then he explains that he himself is that bread of life. And he equates that with believing in him. Yet Jesus explains that he understands why they're not coming to him and why they're not believing in him, because he says that only those whom the father draws will come to me. After that discourse, we read this in John 6:66. As a result of this, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. We see Jesus do the very same thing very early in his ministry in Mark chapter one, verses thirty five to thirty eight. We're told in the very early morning, while it's still dark, Jesus gets up, he leaves his house, and he goes away to a secluded place. And he was praying there. You know, Simon Peter and his companions are searching for Jesus. They find him, and they say to Jesus when they find him, everyone is looking for you. Jesus turns to them and says to them, let's go somewhere else. Let's go somewhere else. To the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came Some of Jesus' most hard statements come when large crowds gather around him. Luke 14, verses 25 and following, says this. Now large crowds were going after him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he says in verse 33 of that same chapter, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Classically referred to as the hard sayings of Jesus. And these are made when crowds are gathering around him. You see, Jesus did not live for the accolades of men, but to do the will of his Father who is in heaven. And as a result of that, don't miss this, since he didn't live for the accolades of men, he wasn't hindered by their disgruntlement. He didn't live for their praise, so his work wasn't hindered when they hated him. 
Jesus wasn't deterred from God the Father's plan when everyone wanted to push Jesus into physical kingship. So he wasn't deterred from his Father's plan when they sought his destruction. Or think of it this way. If Jesus' resolve was based upon the hosannas of Palm Sunday, then he would have crumbled when they said crucify him just a few days later. That same fickle crowd went from declaring Hosanna to saying crucify him. The Jews might oppose Jesus for this reason or that, but no matter how they treated Jesus, he did not allow their actions to hinder his acts of mercy extended to those who were in need. I wonder if in our own Christian walk, we see starts and stops in our service to the Lord because we allow public opinion to hold far too much sway over us. Well, we admit you can't please everyone all the time. We might all admit that. I wonder why it is that we live so much of our life trying to do so. The problem is that pleasing everyone is not only futile, but the desire to please everyone demonstrates that we put far too much stress and value on the opinions of men. The fact is, you cannot seek the favor of men and simultaneously do what pleases God. It's one or the other. You can't do both. James 4.4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Bottom line, if you live for the applause of men, you'll die when you receive the mocking, insults, threats, and persecutions. Of men. And we're going to be tested on both fronts, aren't we? There will be moments where everyone might be singing your praises. Will you be faithful to God in that moment, or you get the big head and start to glory in yourself? But we'll also be tested on the, on the other front. How about when people curse the day you were born? Will you maintain faithfulness to God in those moments as well? Do you allow the wrongs done to you to affect your obedience to the Lord? Do you attempt to excuse your lack of workmanship for Christ on the basis of something that someone else did to you? Do you believe just because you've been treated wrongfully, you now have excuse as to why you don't show compassion to others? We must not allow the opinions and actions of men toward us to deter us from doing God's work. And I think the best way to do that is to remember who our boss is. We don't work for fellow man. We work for an audience of one. We work that our Heavenly Father would be delighted. Secondly, Jesus, Jesus, uh, his, he steadfastly did the works of God because, number two, a good workman knows why his position exists. A good workman knows why his position exists. He not only knows who he reports to or who he's accountable to, But he knows what his position is all about. He knows why it exists. And in particular here, Jesus is committed to do something about man's desperate situation. And he passionately pursued the glory of God. Jesus knew what a blind beggar man is. 
It's most likely that Jesus and his disciples happen upon this blind man while they're traveling along some busy street in Jerusalem. He would most likely be dependent upon the generosity of men. As you can imagine, blindness is a very difficult condition to have, probably even worse in the ancient world without any amount of modern technology as it relates to those who are blind. He would have been quite dependent upon the generosity of other men for his sustenance. Now, just as we noted last week with the woman bent double in Luke 13, we must not take lightly the fact of how this all starts off. Look at verse, chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he, speaking of Jesus, saw. He saw a man born blind. I'm sure many people ignored this man. I'm sure others may have noticed him and walked by. Perhaps a few were concerned for the man. Perhaps a few gave him some money or something else every once in a while. But Jesus saw him. And on this day would change this blind man's life forever. Now, nearly every commentator who has spoken on this text of Scripture points out the fact that Jesus' healing of this man born blind is meant to serve as a living parable. And this is because all of mankind is very well represented by this man born blind. Spiritually speaking, prior to being saved, we're all blind beggars. We're blinded by the God of this world so that we might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Second Corinthians 4, 4. We are all spiritually bankrupt, having nothing by which we might boast before God. All of our good deeds are filthy rags in God's sight. Isaiah 64, 6. We've rebelled and sinned against God. And we all bear the guilt and results of the fall. We're in we're all this way from birth. David declared, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 5. Ephesians 2, 3 declares that by nature we are children of wrath. We're not born innocent. We're born guilty. We all inherit original sin from our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they fell from their holy condition. We are helpless, we are hopeless, we are utterly dependent upon the mercy of God. But Jesus knows our need. He knows our desperate situation. So he applied the riches of his mercy to our need. And there's a glorious contrast pictured here in our account before us. When Jesus' disciples take notice of this man they immediately enter into a philosophical discussion. The disciples ask Jesus as they're approaching this man, what's the reason behind this man's blindness? That's what they're after. We're not told how they knew that this man was born blind, only that they knew it. And so they ask Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, there are a few theories floating around the theological a workshop in those days regarding how it is that congenital disabilities might occur. How do these disabilities that happen from birth, what's their purpose? On what basis do they occur? There's a couple of different things that were floating around. For one, the Essenes and Gnostics borrowed beliefs from the Persians and Greeks who held to the pre-existence of the soul. 
or even the transmigration of the soul, otherwise known as reincarnation. There are some people that believe, these are definitely not Orthodox Jews, that a person's condition in this life is a result of their performance in a previous life. So a man born blind is that way because he did something wrong in a previous existence. This led to the belief that blessed people had earned it in a previous existence, and those who were suffering deserved it from their actions in a previous existence. And this is so typical of those, of those systems that believe in reincarnation today, with the caste system and the untouchables. It is believed that they deserve the condition that they're in. Orthodox Jews would have rejected this view although it may have been held by some of the populace as indicated by the superstition of Herod and some others who believe that Jesus might be a reincarnated John the Baptist or might be Elijah or some other prophet come back. There are others, though, that promulgated the belief that a child's handicaps or diseases were the direct result of sins of his or her parents. Where do they get this idea? Well, it's thought that perhaps this came from a grossly wrong application of Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, Exodus 34, verse 7, Numbers 14, verse 18, and Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, which all say the same thing, virtually, in which the Lord's act of visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations is declared. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Here's a statement. God visiting the iniquity of the fathers in the third and fourth generations. Certainly, Hebrew children suffered from the disobedience and rebellion of their parents. Can you think of a couple of examples? How about the wilderness wanderings? <laughs> right? For 40 years, Israel wanders in the wilderness because one generation wouldn't go in to the promised land when they were told to. So there's a generation there that does end up going into the promised land. But imagine if you were born in year one of the 40 years of wandering. Right? You're suffering consequences from the previous generation's actions. How about the deportations? Right. Being deported from the promised land because of rebellion in Israel. Perhaps you were children born and you suffered as a result of these rebellions of your parents. But while it is certainly true that children benefit from godly parents and they suffer from ungodly ones in a variety of ways, there is no direct correlation between sins of parents and congenital disabilities, disabilities from birth. Now, we know we do know that a baby can suffer physical and mental handicaps as a direct result of a mother's harmful actions. For example, the pregnant woman engages in drunkenness or drug use or smoking, or even STDs can have an adverse effect on the development and birth of the baby. I'm sure you've seen pictures of babies who are born to mothers who are addicted to drugs. Or perhaps you've seen fetal alcohol syndrome in children. These pictures are sad. In particular, we even know that should a woman have gonorrhea, a baby's eyes can be affected as the baby comes out of the birth canal. And if antibiotics are not administered, literally, the baby will go blind as a result of it. But these aren't the sorts of things that Jesus' disciples are speaking to. 
not talking about some particular physical thing that maybe the mother did that resulted in the child's disability. This is not the nature of the issue. The disciples are asking, who sinned, parents or this man? The disciples are asking Jesus to weigh in on this debate. Was contemporary rabbinical thought correct? Were the parents of this blind man to be blamed for his blindness? By the way, there's another option. Others wondered if perhaps the child could commit sin while in utero, while in the womb. Or perhaps God foresaw sins that the child would commit and therefore punished the child from the outset. These sorts of things floated around as well. So the disciples asked Jesus, who's to blame for this man's blindness? Is there something that sounds familiar about this line of reasoning to you? Thinking about an Old Testament book that has a lot of repetitive cycles of dialogue. You know, there's this man who, in the course of just a little time, lost all of his possessions, was bereft of his children, and was scraping his boils with a pot shirt. And then along comes a, couple, a few supposed friends. By the way, the best thing those friends do for him is in the seven days or so in which they sit in silence with him. That's the best part of what you have to say about those guys when they kept their mouth shut. Because as soon as they open their mouth, they are no friends to Job whatsoever. Instead of caring about Job and sympathizing with him and seeing how they could help him and how they could help him work through his conditions, they see him as just an opportunity to discuss what sin he must have done, what wrong he must be punished here for. Some friends they were. Should you ever get the desire to do similarly? How about you just wait until you suffer like that and then try to apply your instruction to yourself? And I think you'll see just how worthless it is. The disciples were engaging in this very sort of dialogue. Or like those who believed Pilate's slaughter of the Galileans or the falling of the temple of the tower in Siloam were a special judgment on especially wicked people. Remember, this happened at the beginning of Luke chapter 13. Jesus says, don't think that there's anything especially wicked about them. Unless you repent, you will too likewise perish. You see, instead of using that moment as an opportunity for us to contemplate just how short life is and to recognize that we too are under the ferocious wrath and fury of a holy God if we don't repent and believe in Christ. Instead of that, people love to take moments like that and to judge others down. This is exactly what the disciples are doing in this moment. But besides any of the mistaken assumptions that are present here, the disciples' response highlights another problem. They, they didn't ignore this man. They saw him, obviously. But they don't do anything to help him either. He's a convenient object over which to speculate and conduct a philosophical discussion. Wouldn't that be interesting if you're there on the ground, you know, bleeding to death, and people came up and go, yeah, I wonder why the blood flows that way. I'm really curious about this. Yeah, let's, let's discuss. What do you think happened to him in particular? Do you think this happened because he did something wrong? Do you think this is a judgment from God? I don't know. Let's contemplate this together. Or it's been said it's like the father comes up to a river and sees his child out in the deep, drowning. 
and, said, and starts begin scolding him. I told you not to go out there that deep and bathe that far out in the water. The sensible father goes and grabs his child, brings him to shore, and then talks to him about what happened, right? Warns him that a worse fate might not befall him. Beware of engaging in this same sort of behavior. Engaging in a distanced discussion of the plights of others without becoming personally involved. There's nothing easier to slip into, and there's nothing that is more uncaring than to sit and discuss the issues of others and not step in personally to see what is really the aid that is needed. Spurgeon said it this way, I would rather create an ounce of help than a ton of theory. I would rather create an ounce of help than a ton of theory. It's not that a consideration of philosophy is altogether unprofitable. It's just not helpful if it doesn't translate into practice. And it's dangerous if it's considered an end in itself. If all this man becomes is an object for philosophy, and he hasn't been treated as a human being, as one made in the image of God. You see, while the disciples see this blind man as a theological puzzle, Jesus sees him as an opportunity for work. While the disciples desired to know why this man was born blind, Jesus redirected their attention to what his condition called for or allowed for. Jesus answers his disciples plainly, neither this man sinned nor his parents. Now, by that, he's not saying that his parents or him were sinless, but that it wasn't because of some particular sin that they had committed that this man was born blind. Now, obviously, we do understand that sin in general is connected to the fallen condition of this world and is behind the fact of sickness, disease, and disability. And we also are aware of the fact that God does bring discipline to his children for their sin. And this can happen even physically. Check out Numbers 12.10 or 1 Corinthians 11.30. But this does not mean that every adverse circumstance is the direct result of discipline. We experience much hardship just as a result of living in a fallen world. It reminds us that this is not our home. And remember the experience of Job. His trials had nothing to do with particular unrighteousness in him, which God was punishing him for. Jesus says, neither this man sinned nor his parents. Then he goes on to explain the following. He says this blindness was present, quote, so that the works of God might be manifested in him. Jesus knew that God was in control of all things. So he saw creaturely weakness or brokenness as an opportunity for the glory of God. F.F. Bruce said it this way. God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ and others seeing this work of God might turn to the true light of the world. Strangely enough, it is precisely our need that excites God's help. It is our deficiency, our lack, which God is pleased to fill up with himself. And what is our need? Our need is not only to have light, but the capacity to see light as this blind man needed. It's not a matter of merely fashioning glasses, reforming someone's life. It's not a matter of just correcting their vision through education. 
It's not a matter of just applying eye ointment through religion. The natural man requires sight. And this is the gift of God. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To him, amazing grace captures our delight in God's marvelous work of salvation. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. God saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. I think there's also wonderful instruction for our response to personal suffering and hardship in Jesus' words. This man had lived many years being blind from birth. And Jesus explained that his blindness was for the glory of God. In this case, God's plan, God's glory would be seen by Jesus' healing of this man and using him then to bear witness to the enlightening power of Jesus. But think about how many years had gone by without this healing. When we encounter unexplainable suffering, remember that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Or I said before, you don't just throw that out flippantly to someone who's in suffering. Just uncaringly go, oh, well, it's for some good. Obviously, you wouldn't handle that passage that way. But this is a solemn promise that can be used to comfort those who are hurting. That God is working to bring Himself glory and that is not at odds with His desire to do us good. Matthew Henry observes, The intention of providence often does not appear till a great while after the event, perhaps many years later. Have you ever heard before a retrospect is 2020? A lot of times later on we might look back and that suffering which didn't make sense at all, we see the marvelous providential hand of our all-good and all-wise God. You may not always understand a particular case of suffering, but perhaps instead of trying to find reasons for the suffering you encounter, like these disciples did on this occasion, for what reason this man born blind, his sin or his parents' sin, perhaps instead of engaging in that thought process, you ought to consider and ponder how God might receive glory through it. John Piper has famously written some books, Don't Waste Your Cancer, things of this nature. His point is, God will receive glory through this. So let's invest our energy in that direction. Not trying to figure out all the who's, what's, where's, and why's. Not considering the past, but thinking about the future. You may not know what God's specific purpose is in that regard, how it will be attained or when it will be accomplished, but you can rest in the knowledge that God knows what He's doing and whatever is for His glory is ultimately for our good as well. I think this will help ensure that you keep working faithfully as His servant. A third thing to note, a good workman knows what his role is. A good workman knows what his role is. Jesus knew who He was. Jesus tells His disciples, Well, in the world I might be, I am the light of the world. Jesus was never unsure of who he was. Not knowing who we are and what we've been called to will will, 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 will severely hinder our work. Can you imagine a group of soldiers 
that are deployed, and they don't know that they're soldiers, and they don't know their respective positions, and they don't know what their responsibilities are. Can you imagine sending a group of men out into battle that don't know who they are, and they don't know what they're there for? And they don't know the relationship one to another. What would ensue? Absolute chaos. You see, knowing our role dictates what we must do. Knowing who we are explains what we're here for. You see, Jesus was the light of the world, so he must work in accordance with that identity. If that who Jesus is, who Jesus is then he must work in accordance with that. Jesus says, it is necessary for us to work the works of the one sending me. This is not an optional activity. Again, Jesus says, it is necessary. I must be about my Father's work. Again, we hear that repetitive refrain through the life of Jesus, that that there was divine mandate behind what Jesus did. I must be about my Father's business. He knew who he was. He knew what his mission was. How many people today are wandering about aimlessly? I don't know what to do with my life. I wonder, do you know who you are? If you're a Christian, your ultimate identity is His. You are His. And what is your purpose? To give glory to God, to live your life to His renown, to advance His kingdom. So many people are aimless in this life because they don't know who they are. They don't know what they're here for. A.W. Pink points out a very interesting contrast that happens between John 8 and John 9. Because in both chapters, Jesus declares himself as the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12, he says it, and he says it in John 9, 6. And I want you to see this. And Pink does a really good job of showing this contrast. As the light of the world, he does kind of two things simultaneously. Number one, he exposes hypocrisy. (laughs) He exposes that which is false and fake. And simultaneously, he grants sight to those who are blind. He exposes the blindness of those who think they are seeing, and he gives sight to those who are truly blind. You see, as light of the world, Jesus exposed it in hypocrisy. Look at this in John 8. Flip back a page or so, or maybe you don't have to flip back, and it's right there across the way. John 8:44, Jesus says to these religious leaders, You are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and father of lies. Then skip to verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. And after Jesus declares, before Abraham was, I am, they rightly recognize that Jesus is claiming deity. And at that moment, they pick up stones to stone him. And what do we think about what Jesus had just said to them? You guys are murderers. You're following the course of your father, the devil. The light exposes hypocrisy. The light bears all. It opens up that which is shrouded in darkness. John 3, this is the judgment that the light is coming into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who, who does evil hates the light. It does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The light of the world, Jesus, exposes sin and hypocrisy. But the light of the world, Jesus, also grants sight to the blind. 
We see this in John 9. Jesus declares, this is who I am. This is what I must do. He spits upon the ground. He makes clay from the spittle. He anoints that upon this man's eyes and then commands him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, having been sent. The blind man departs and washes and comes back seeing. Comes back seeing. This blind man did not hesitate. And said by someone, he blindly obeyed Christ. Ah, very good, very good. You can groan, it's okay. How wonderful this moment must have been. He who was once blind could now see. Notice that Jesus worked in keeping with his identity. He knew who he was. He consistently worked in accordance with that. Fourth and finally, a good workman knows when it's time to work. Right? We know when it's time to work. Jesus knew his time was limited. You can take all four of these points in a very mundane way and consider employment, right? Employment with someone. You've got to know who your boss is. You need to know what the purpose of your job is. You need to know uh, what your responsibilities are, what your role is. You need to know when it's time to work. Those things aren't understood and lived in accordance with you've got problems, right? Jesus knew the night was coming when no one could work. In particular, Jesus here is alluding to the fact that his hour was quickly approaching. He would soon lay down his life upon the cross. His earthly ministry was coming to a close. Knowing that time is short impacts the way that a person lives. I wonder what it will take for us to live as if today was all we had. I'm sure all of us have encountered these predictions for the end of the world. We've got another big one coming up, right? The Mayan calendar thing. Is that somewhere in December of this year, right? Supposedly. Um, We've all been through many other moments like this where people have predicted the end of the world. And I'm sure that on some level we have laughed and scoffed at such things because Jesus has said so plainly that we will not know the day or the hour. Yet, as ridiculous as it is to emphatically state when the end will come and we're told that we won't know that, it is equally ridiculous to live as if we're guaranteed a tomorrow. Right? I mean, I wonder how many times we have laughed and scoffed at these people who are talking about the end of the world. But I wonder, after we've done that, whether we've contemplated whether or not we're going to have a tomorrow. So we've laughed and scoffed at these people who consider that the end is coming soon. But meanwhile, we who are Christians ought to live with that ever-present reality that the end could come any time. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. The end could come any time. Now, certainly there are many responsibilities which we carry out that involve planning, which considers tomorrow and many days after that as well. But all of these plans have to be held lightly as God's sovereign will interacts with each one, right? Holding those plans with open hands. So when, while we make plans for future days, when we never lose sight of the importance of the present, here's the dreaded danger of procrastination, is that you never get around to doing the very thing you should have done in the first place. And while we long for our homecoming, for we know that our death will just usher us into the presence of our Lord, we've been afforded a very unique opportunity, while it is still called today, to call rebels, just as we used to be, 
to repentance and faith in Christ. Evangelism, friends, will soon pass away. Evangelism is something for here and now. We won't be engaged in in heaven. We'll continue to praise God both here and then. But there will be no evangelism in heaven. You won't be sharing the gospel with those who are dead in their sins, for the judgment will have already fallen. And people are dying and hell is filling. Richard Baxter famously captured the right sense of urgency when he wrote, I preach as never sure to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. Do we live that way? Is there a urgency about us? You see, if the night is soon approaching when no work will be able to be done, we must work then while it is still called day. While it's still day is when we must work. Colossians 4, 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Ephesians 5, 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Galatians 6, 9 and 10, don't lose heart in doing good, for in due time we'll reap if we don't grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. J.C. Ryle put it well. Opportunities once lost can never be retrieved. Opportunities once lost can never be retrieved. A second lease on life is, is granted to no man. Let us resist procrastination as we would resist the devil. The point is we must do our work now or never. When time is up, it's up. So don't fritter your time away. Consider where your time is being wasted. And lay hold of time as a precious gift from God and use it for his glory and kingdom. This is what a good workman does. I'm sure there are times in our lives as Christians in which we catch wind in our sails and we see vast amounts of productivity that really counts. Works that please our Heavenly Father. Those things which, which will be rewarded with heavenly rewards. And then we may be far too acquainted with becoming sidetracked in our service to our king by the least bit of adverse circumstances. We can forget who we are and what we've been called to do. We can forget how desperate the lost and dying world all around us is. And we can neglect to make the most of the time that we've been given. Oh, that we would return back to this contemplation of how Jesus lived his life. Spurgeon says it so well, extended quote from Spurgeon. He says this, quote, I'm afraid that most of us would have had no heart to help even the most needy while ourselves escaping from a shower of stones. And if we had attempted the work moved by supreme compassion, we should have gone about it blunderingly in a great hurry and certainly should not have talked calmly and wisely as the Savior did when he answered his disciples question and went on to discourse with them. One of the things worthy to be noticed in our Lord's character is his wonderful quiet of spirit, especially his marvelous calmness in the presence of those who misjudged and insulted and slandered him. He is reviled often, but never ruffled. He is in deaths oft, but always full of life. The Lord Jesus did not permit his feelings to overcome him. He was quiet and self-possessed, acting with a profound disregard of the slanders and assaults of his bitter enemies. Oh, that God, that God's grace would enable us to follow our Lord and Savior 
rebounding to God's glory. I pray that we who are brothers and sisters in Christ would be so zealous for the advancement of God's kingdom and the saving of lost souls that nothing would stop our resolve to be found good workmen of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May the Lord, by His grace, bolster our confidence and redouble our resolve to work with all of our might. And may we work to please our gracious God and Savior, hoping that one day He will say to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your marvelous Word, for the example of Christ. As is true with your scripture all over the place, we recognize that there are many points to be made and many truths to be uncovered. We're thankful for the way in which you teach us by your Holy Spirit and bring correction and encouragement that is needed. I pray that we would solemnly consider our work in this world. Help us to make most effective use of the time you've granted. Help us remember who we are and what we've been given to do. And please help us to not be deterred from this great work, even though we encounter great persecution and trials and difficulties. Lord, I know that this is not only a tall order equation, it's an impossible one apart from your grace. This is not something that we just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to accomplish. It is something of a dependence upon your grace, your strength to make this happen. So we ask, Lord, that you would do this. That you would do this for the ultimate reason why it should be done for your glory. Lord, I pray that in this place as we have contemplated what the Christian life should, be look, look, should look like. I pray that those who perhaps are not Christians would be confronted with the fact that all of us, at least once were, in the condition of this blind man from birth, spiritually speaking. And all of us are in need of Your grace and mercy. May You convict people of sin, Lord. Convince them of their need of Christ. Draw them unto the only Savior, the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. Make us your workmen. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.